I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Katya Valzeich interviews a mergers and acquisition lawyer at a satellite office of a global law firm. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit community. We're joined today by Eric Lauria Banta, a 2017 graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School. He's a corporate transactional lawyer for the global law firm Foley and Lardner, where he does mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures. Let's talk about what it is you do. Um, I want to start with a bit of an explainer uh, for your overarching practice. Can you talk a little bit about um, the different transactions that you do at a high level? I like to describe it as we buy and sell companies. We're either on the on the buy side representing the the buyers, or on the sell side representing the the selling stockholders, or representing the company that's selling assets. A merger, for example, is only one type of transaction structure. From a high level, there's equity deals and there's asset deals. On the equity side of the deals, it can either be you know a merger, which is actually a, it's a statutory merger under state law where you know companies merge and go together. But another way of purchasing the equity of a company is just a, a normal stock purchase where you you directly purchase the stock from the stockholders rather than going through this this statutory merger process. And then what about divestiture? An example of a divestiture is we're not selling the entire company. We're just selling one business line or you know one piece of the business. So we're divesting that business from the overall company, but the entire company isn't being sold. So when you are working on these different types of deal structures, who are the parties involved? It's a variety. So I work on deals all the way from small $5 million deals all the way up to billion dollar deals involving public companies. So when I'm on the buy side, public companies that are making 
strategic acquisitions. Um, you know, they want to enter a, a new business line or they, they want to supplement their, their current business. So they buy a smaller company up. Uh, we also represent PE funds on the sell side. We represent a lot of family businesses. So it's a, a small shareholder base, mostly family members where they just got to the point where they want to sell their business. And so they're selling it to either another big strategic company or the public company or a PE fund or really well, really anyone, anyone who wants to buy it, I guess. But those, those are the big players. And PE funds are private equity funds, correct? Sorry, private equity funds. Yep. Is it, is it possible for other entities to get involved? The main parties are the buyer and the seller. Um, there's other parties that are involved in the, in the transaction. If you really want to get in the weeds, there is, especially nowadays, there's something called R&W insurance. So it's rep and warranty insurance. When you're selling a company, you make all these reps and warranties. You're just saying all this stuff that you're saying is true about your business. You know, you own the assets, you own the IP, you're in compliance with laws, your financial statements are true. And what rep and warranty insurance is, you know, engage a, a third-party insurer and they will actually underwrite all of those reps and warranties. And so if any of those reps and warranties are false, usually the buyer would, would sue the seller. But with rep and warranty insurance, you actually would go after the insurer. So that's just one example of, a, of how a third-party can get involved in these, these transactions. There's also more like service provider type third parties. If you have a big shareholder base and you have to pay a hundred people um, out of the closing proceeds, you'll engage a paying agent. Escrow agents will, a lot of times for these indemnification obligations, you know, what we'll do is we'll hold back a certain amount of the proceeds, say, you know, five to 10% or, or 1%. At the, every deal is different. It's negotiated, but you'll actually put that money into an escrow account. And then if you do have a claim, because like, you know, the reps and warranties are false, you could actually recover the money from that fund rather than having to go against the sellers. So it's just basically a, a way of making sure that the, the sellers don't take the money and run away with it. Some of this is maybe familiar to people who are listening because they've bought or sold a house or a car. It sounds like it's just all on a much larger scale. Yeah. So you have given me a perfect transition uh, point here. We understand big picture what it is you do. I'd love to learn more about the kinds of clients that you mostly work with. So I mostly work with public company clients. They are very active in, in the M&A space. They're kind of constantly buying and selling companies tweaking tweaking their business lines, reworking the business. Also represent PE funds or, or kind of pseudo PE funds. For example, one client, they'll come in, they'll buy, say, a, a $50 million platform company in the manufacturing space. And then what they'll do is with that platform company, they'll, they'll try to do add-on or tuck-in acquisitions. So they'll, over the next three to 10 years, try to build the business both organically and by buying smaller businesses where it makes sense. 
And then anywhere from five to 10 years after the initial acquisition, they'll sell it hopefully for a multiple. And so, yeah, those are the, those are the main, main types of clients on the buy side. And then on the sell side, it's a little, it's a little more, you know, kind of random or sporadic where clients come from, you know, apart from the public company that I talked about, it's, you know, a lot of referrals with Foley being one of the, or the, you know, the biggest firm in Wisconsin, we just get a, you know, a lot of like the family businesses that want to sell, you know, where do they go? They come to, they come to Foley. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, Visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. Can you talk a bit about some of the venture capital work that you do? Yeah. The work is the work is somewhat similar in so far as it's contract based, it's transactional. It's you know, it's certainly not litigation. It's a it's a, a corporate practice, but it's not it's not buying and selling companies. I represent startups basically from from formation through their entire growth growth stage, you know, all the way up into, a, you know, an eventual, an eventual sale or, or potential IPO. And so it's a lot of corporate counseling, like all of clients emailing me, you know, every day, just kind of asking random questions about like, how do I file an EIN? Like, what do I do with this employee? You know, I have to fire someone. What do I do? So I assume that means some of the counseling you're doing our recommendations at the the very start of the business, right? What type of legal entity, what state do they incorporate in? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, for you know, what state to incorporate in is pretty simple these days. We almost always recommend Delaware. Delaware is just the it's just kind of the, the the gold standard. Everyone incorporates there. They have a really robust Delaware code and, and statute and regulations kind of built out there. If you ever do have to go to court, all of the judges there, you know, are really sophisticated. They understand these corporate business issues. You know, the the biggest kind of quote unquote deals that we do for startup clients or emerging growth companies are venture capital financings. And so 
in order to you know operate the business and grow they need to raise money and so venture capital firms or funds will invest invest in the company you know say they'll at the at the seed stage they'll say invest you know one to two million dollars for 10 to 20 percent of the company and so we'll represent our startup clients kind of kind of throughout that process when you're making these early stage recommendations who are you giving these recommendations to so it's the fi- the founder uh there's usually you know anywhere from you know one to one to four founders and so it's in Madison for example where I'm where I'm located we get we get a lot of founders or startups coming out of the University of Wisconsin Madison a lot of people come out of that kind of ecosystem uh Madison over the last I would say as you ask but over the last 5 to 10 years has really developed a, a pretty robust startup and venture capital community where founders are really able to to raise money here Whereas in, you know, in the past, whenever someone thinks of a, a fancy startup, everyone just goes straight to Silicon Valley in California. Um, but it's been pretty cool over the last decade or so how Wisconsin and Madison especially has kind of, kind of become a hotbed for startups. When you're working with startups, does your firm ever take equity instead of fees for payment? We do not. That is That is something that some firms in California will do, but we we do not. And I think that's a, a decision that the firm just made a while ago. It can it can get a little dicey as far as you know, just the the ethical considerations. Um, you know, if you have a, a monetary stake in a company, you might you know you could see situations where you might advise them differently than mm-hmm. you would if you were just a you know, kind of neutral legal advisor, you know, for example, really pushing them to sell the company so that the law law firm could, you know, exit their investment sooner than, you know, might be, you know, otherwise advised, for example. So it's not something that, that the firm gets into every, every once in a while, if, if the firm has legal fees that the companies can't pay for one reason or another, in very rare circumstances, we'll take equity in exchange for fees, but you know, relatively low dollar amounts. We're not making any sort of like significant right. investment. I want to pivot now and talk a little bit about the role you play in the deals that you're assigned, especially now that you're a sixth year associate. Whenever people ask me about you know whether or not they should go to law school. You know, they say, you know, I don't know. I, re- I really don't want to go. I I hate reading and writing. I don't want to just, you know, sit in front of a computer all day and and just read documents all day. Um, and we certainly do a lot of that. But transactional attorneys especially have, we have a lot of interaction with, with people generally. And I'll just kind of back up and set the scene here. So the corporate attorneys on deals to use a sports analogy or kind of quarterback the deal. So we, you know, we, we run and organize the deal from start to finish, but there are anywhere from, you know, five to 30, you know, 30 people potentially staffed on a deal from one law firm. And those people are generally subject matter experts that are helping advise throughout the transaction. 
So for example, tax, employee benefits, labor and employment, IP or intellectual property, uh, government regulations, export controls. If you're on the buy side, you have to do you do diligence on the on the company that you're buying. So you you know you go through a whole whole diligence stage where you ask the the seller all these questions about their business, essentially just trying to find things that you know are wrong or could result in liabilities post closing. That we want to find out about now before we buy the company because we don't want to have to have to deal with them after. So all these specialists get involved in the diligence stage. They also get involved in the the purchase agreement. They'll provide comments to the purchase agreement. Um, and so the the corporate attorneys they basically have to organize, you know, this whole this whole circus of <laughs> of attorneys. And so it's really it's a lot of almost project management. I would say, I mean, high level project management because we're we're certainly doing you know legal work at the same time. But it's a lot of emailing people, getting on the phone with people, coordinating questions and comments. As a six-year associate, also overseeing the junior associates on the deals, so that you know, because the junior associates are are mostly doing the the diligence-related tasks on the corporate side, you know, and that that's just you know internal at the law firm. It's uh, you know obviously also coordinating with the client. To make sure that they're they're involved throughout the whole process, and then you know most I guess most importantly negotiating with the with the law firm on the other side of the deal, getting on negotiation calls with them, emailing back and forth. It's uh I mean end of the day I guess it's a lot of it's a lot of interaction. Deals move really fast. It can be fun sometimes, most of the times, um, but it, it's certainly more than just going to work closing your door and and sitting in front of a computer reading documents. It's a lot of um, interacting with people, which I think is one thing that maybe some people, a lot of people might not always, you know, at least, you know, pre, pre-law school or even in law school, honestly, because in law school, people don't really get a sense of what transactional attorneys do. Um, and, you know, some some people like the the project management side of it. Some people don't. Like some people would just prefer to sit down and just write a write a litigation brief. But if um if you, you know, prefer a little bit more action and and talking to people day to day, definitely a lot of that on the on the transactional set. So you're overseeing this group of attorneys who are working on this matter. You're in this project management role. Who do you turn to if you have a question about what is going on with the deal? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I left out the most important part, the, the <laughs> partner the partner on the deal. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of the structure is partner at the top, senior associate, and then, you know, anywhere from one to three mid-level to junior associates. You know, and different partners take different approaches on how involved they are in the deals. Um but par- partner is really the one that's running the deal from a high level, making all of the high level decisions, and then kind of trusting the the senior associate or senior counsel to to kind of implement and run the deal from start to finish, but advising advising when when needed. 
Is this a benefit then to doing this type of work at a larger firm where you have easy access to all those subject matter experts? Yeah, that is a that is a great question. Short answer is yes. You know, the kind of joke among lawyers and some some of the subject matter experts is that the the corporate attorneys are kind of just the dumb corporate guys because we have a very generalized knowledge, you know, like we definitely run the deal. We're very good at drafting the, you know, the transaction documents can get it done, start to finish, but we don't know, don't really know anything about, I mean, we know some things like we know nothing because we can generally advise on this stuff. But once you start to get in the weeds, you start to get into trouble, you know, tax, employee benefits, government regulations, export controls, all this stuff know very little about. And so whenever we have questions, you know, almost always want to reach out to our specialists. And so having, you know, having a firm with, I think we have a thousand attorneys with subject matter experts across the country is, is, is hugely valuable. You know, honestly, I can't imagine being at, you know, let's say a, a smaller firm where you, are either ex- expected to, to either just know that stuff, like you just have to to have a, a, a lot broader base of knowledge across the subject matters, or if a client asks, like you just have to look it up. Like I don't have to, I hardly ever do research on something because I just can go ask some about it because they, you know, they can tell me in 10 seconds instead of me having to research it for two hours. Now there's potential disadvantages or, or some people might not might not like that because some people at you know other firms might like to be involved in all the different subject matters and have a have a kind of broader base of knowledge but i mean i personally really like being at a bigger firm where if you have a question about the most obscure obscure things there's usually someone at the firm who can handle it do you work with attorneys at various locations of your firm or are the majority of the ones you interact with in the same office as you? I personally work across across the firm. Um, I regularly work with definitely people in Milwaukee, but that's pretty close. I don't know if that counts. Uh, but Boston, Silicon Valley, Texas, Florida, Chicago, New York. I mean, pr- pretty honestly, pretty much pretty much everywhere uh, it's, it's all it's like it's all seamless um the i mean everyone at the firm just works across offices do you think for your practice area it matters which location you work out of or is that no longer much of a concern yeah so depends who you ask so for me personally with the with the startup and and venture capital work that i do the clients really are are based in Madison. And so there's a lot of value of of me being, you know, in Madison to to service those clients. Not that they're necessarily coming into the the office for meetings a lot, but just to just to be in the city. And so we'll invite clients a lot to to basketball games and hockey games. Um, you know, we have a bunch of football tickets, all that stuff. So, you know, b- being here to be able to do that client development you know, managing client relationships is really important. But I do know there there are certainly associates in the Madison office who don't have a, a single client that is even in, you know, even in the Midwest for that for that matter, let alone let alone Madison. 
So as a senior associate, you mentioned that some of what you do is managing more junior associate. Um, And I hear that you have a fun twist to that role that you get to enjoy. I do. I do. I have I actually I have a twin brother who is a well now he's probably a mid-level associate, but but junior to me. I'm a six-year associate, he's a fourth-year associate, who he is in the Milwaukee office. And so every once in a while we'll get on deals together where I'm senior to him and uh I get to boss him around a little bit, which is especially fun because we're twins, but he is he is older than me by 17 minutes. So technically, technically the big brother, but I get to, uh, I get to boss him around. Um, I, and I, so related story, I, I do get to the Milwaukee office quite a bit. And so for some reason, my dear twin brother has decided to grow out, grow out his hair pretty long. I mean, it's like long, long, like he puts it up in a bun, ponytail, all this stuff. So for a while, whenever I used to go to the Milwaukee office, I'd be walking around and everyone would be like, oh my God, Justin, you cut your hair. <laughs> but no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was, uh, it was just me. So he followed in your footsteps. Do you think he, do you think he saw any of your journey and made decisions one way or another because of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, he worked for a couple of years after undergrad he was working at ibm in rochester and i think he just hated his job and wanted to try something new so he's like hey i'll go to law school like eric you know unclear if he hates his job just as much now but he i think yeah he did so you're at a big firm you're doing m a work the stereotype for attorneys in this sort of position is that you're working crazy hours and maybe not taking the best care of yourself. So what do you do to make sure that you don't end up burned out or hating the work that you do? I mean, to be frank, it's not, you know, it's not, it's, it's definitely not a stereotype. Uh, big law attorneys work, work a lot. Honestly, there's not a lot of work-life balance. Some firms, for example, like to to style themselves as lifestyle firms where you can kind of have a life and work. But big, you know, big law firms just they're just they're just not that. We get we get paid um, you know, really kind of a, obscene amounts of money, at least I think. The expectation is that, you know, you 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 work for that. Now, not everyone is cut out for it, I guess. That's why the, you know, the turnover rate is so high among, among big law firms, but it just, it just kind of is what it is. Now that said, to answer your question, there are ways to, to try to deal with it. I think firms are getting better about trying to help associates, you know, set boundaries, offering more mental health resources. Now that said, you can't go overboard because you you are expected to be a, to be available, you know, a, you know a lot, and you can't just be like, "Hey, I'm only working from from nine to five. But just, I mean, that's just something that's not not acceptable at big law firms. You know, you can set boundaries where just say like you want your your personal time to be half a day on Saturday, like these five hours, or no matter what, I'm gonna work out, you know, every day or every other day from seven day in the morning 
And those are just times where you let everyone know like, Hey, I'm not going to be available that hour. Cause that's my, that's my personal time. That's when I'm working out or, or doing what I need to do. One way or another, you have to make up the time. Like you have to get your work done, bill the hours that you're expected to bill. But you know, the, the billable goal here is depending on what level you are, you know, 1950 to 2000 hours, even the higher billers that are, you know, somewhere in the 2200 range really only comes out to like eight hours a day or something. There's a lot of non, non billable time. So you're, you're, you know, you're, you're working more than eight hours a day, but it's not like you're working 24 seven nonstop. Maybe that, that is a stereotype. You know, some big law attorneys like to, you know, tell everyone that they're working all the time that, I mean, that's, that, that's just not true. There are ways to kind of set boundaries to carve out time, you know, make sure that when you're in the office, you're being efficient, you're getting your work done so that you, you know, you have time to go home and have your personal time and personal space to kind of relax as you need. But, you know, end of the day. It's something that you just have to, if you want to be a lawyer at a big law firm, you have to kind of just expect that it's not always going to be great. There's definitely ways to ways to get through it. What do you like about your job? You know, honestly, I, I really like the fast pace of an M&A deal. Um, you know, for example, I just closed a deal where from the beginning LOI stage all the way to closing, I think it was 40 days. And maybe without context, that that doesn't mean much. But you know, deals sometimes can last like six months. So forty days is extremely fast. We were working a lot, had a had a lot of extremely busy nights, weekends. But there's something about working with working with your team, the associates you're working with, kind of just grinding in the trenches. That uh, it can just it's it, it's exhilarating. Maybe that's the maybe that's the sleep the sleep deprivation, but it's it's something about working towards I guess just working towards a common goal and just just getting something done and accomplished is just it's just fun. Not that there's anything particularly noble or thing like special about being a lawyer and an M and A because in the end we're just buying and selling companies for people. I mean it's just just kind of is what it is, you know. You have to, everyone has to find, find something to get excited about, to wake up in the morning. You like being, you know, no matter what you do, you like being good at what you do, kind of want to be the best. And when you have a team kind of firing on all, all cylinders, you know, kind of operating at the highest level, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. Makes, it makes it worth it. I totally, totally understand that people, um, People think I'm crazy when I say I'm nostalgic about late night study groups in law school before finals. But that's really the last time I had that kind of passing around Chinese food containers and all working our hardest to try and tackle like stuff that was complex to us. So I totally understand that. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. I come from a uh, I ran cross country and track in in college and I, I've kind of taken the same approach and mindset both to law school and to, you know, law firm life. Um, just something about working hard and accomplishing goals, no matter what they are, that just is fun. Makes it worth it. 
I Am The Law is a Lawhub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show on your favorite podcast app.